0: Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to
1: Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. This is part two of seven powerful tools to create legacy wealth from real estate. And so last week, we were talking with Kirk Chisholm, and we went long. In fact, the entire interview was over an hour, so we had to cut it down a little bit. But this is part two, so we're going to pick up right where we left off last week, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Inflation is very closely tied to virtually all these seven benefits that we're talking about today, but it's very closely tied to everything about real estate. And I was actually with Peter Schiff for about a week last week, hanging out with him and a few other people. And, you know, he's always about doomsday, right? Like everything's going like to <laughs> hell in a handbasket. But, <laughs> yep. but, you know, he's very much in the camp that we have inflation, we're going to continue to have inflation, and we could potentially even see hyperinflation, which may sound great if you're a real estate investor, but it has its other blowback and implications. But, you know, the thing is, is as far as I understand it, we live in this country, in this economy, in this world world market that we have, we live in an inflationary environment. And even the Federal Reserve has a stated mandate of having a 2% annual inflation rate. And I think real inflation is probably higher than 2%, it's probably closer to four to five, maybe more. And so if we have to have an inflationary environment in order to sustain the type of economy and economic structure that we have, I don't think there's a lot to worry about as a real estate investor when it comes to inflation. Now, you listen to a guy like Harry Dent, who is also very much of the mind that we will have a long-term inflationary environment, but he's the type of person to believe that we're going to see a deflationary environment first. Once, you know, we go, what what do we call it? You know, when the crap hits the fan, we're going to see deflation and then followed by a strong inflationary environment or hyperinflation. So I'd like to ask you what you think. What are your long-term predictions for inflation? And do you think we're going to have a deflation before a continued inflationary environment? Do you have any opinion on that?
0: Well, those uh, Harry Dent and Peter Schiff must be very smart. They're a lot smarter than me if they can predict the future, because I can't. I can tell you this, that I'd love to be hanging outside their offices selling caves because they're telling everybody to go live in a cave with their guns and their gold and you know protect themselves. And that sells a lot of newspapers. But I think the reality is that, and it's not just them, I'm kind of picking on them, but it's not just them. Like a lot of people are out there saying it's the end of the world, we're going to have hyperinflation, or we're going to have deflation, it's going to destroy everything. And I think the point is, is it sells newsletters, it sells newspapers. I mean, that's the point. But the reality is usually much more nuanced than that. So, you know, when 2008 happened, you know, I predicted that we'd have higher unemployment than we did and end up getting there. And I also actually wrote a few articles back then because I thought that many people were missing the boat. And one of the articles I wrote was, it talked a lot about kind of the reality of inflation that people were missing. So yes, in 2008, we had deflation. I think it's hard to argue that because asset prices went down and everything went down. But I think you remove that from the picture for a moment. The challenge isn't that because the late 90s, we had higher inflation than normal because of asset prices and everything was going up. But that was a bubble. Just like 2008, You know, when the market dropped, that was kind of the inverse of a bubble. It was a bubble popping. So... We did a lot of research in the last 10 years since the crisis. And my contention through most of that time was we were actually in deflation and nobody was actually talking about it. I mean, people were talking about it, but the Fed wasn't. The Fed was saying, oh, we're doing fine. And, you know, because the reality is, is inflation and deflation are very susceptible to this concept called uh, reflexivity. Have you heard of this concept? Uh, Yeah, I'm not familiar with it, but you can describe it. So reflexivity is effectively, I'll describe it like this. Inflation is actually a perfect example of this. So reflexivity says that if I believe there's inflation, I'm going to spend my money as if there's inflation, right? So basically I'm going to spend my money because it's going to be worth less tomorrow. So that's how I would act if there's inflation. If there's deflation, I'm going to save my cash because it'll be worth more tomorrow. That's the simplified version. So if I think there's deflation, then I'm saving my cash. If enough people think there's deflation, they're doing the same thing. And actually, they will end up causing deflation because they think that there's deflation. It's self-fulfilling. Yes. So reflexivity is basically, in some ways, manipulation. It's manipulating the markets to believe that a certain thing is true so people act that way. And it, it will come true. So based on the numbers I was seeing, we had deflation for quite a few years during the last 10 years. And it wasn't until the Fed really kind of took the gloves off and said, oh, we're starting to see inflation has taken off. And eventually people believed it. And that actually caused inflation and pulled us out of it. So deflation is very dangerous because we don't have monetary, or I say we, I mean, the Fed does not have monetary tools to combat it inflation they do they raise interest rates you know they have tools to do that but deflation there are not a lot of tools i mean japan is a good example of this they've been trying to get out of deflation for 30 years and they can't and i don't look at deflation as bad but our culture and most countries around the world do because the whole economic system is built around inflation as you said like we're all accept that it's a norm when if you look back 100 years the norm was one year inflation, one year deflation. Like it was normal to fluctuate every other year. And the Federal Reserve has done a good job at stabilizing that. And I mean, we've had, I don't know, whatever it is, 70 years of, I think it was the 50s was the last time we had deflation or more than deflation. I don't count 2008, but except for that, it was really back in the 50s. So it's an important concept to understand. I'm not fearful of it in by and large because I think the Federal Reserve has done a good job at. I don't want to say kind of policing it so that people aren't thinking that we're caught up in this. But if we get to a point where they run out of tools, then that's where I start to worry. But I don't worry about it right now. I was worried about it a few years ago. Right now I'm not. But it's not the kind of thing that's gonna catch you off guard. Like if you own real estate, you're not gonna wake up tomorrow and be like, Oh god, deflation got me. Like it's going to take years to really kind of get the impact. So there's plenty of time to plan around it and to make adjustments. So it's not something I would worry about. It's just something to keep an eye on so you understand where the trends are going. So
1: are you saying we have, we've had a deflationary environment for the last 10 years?
0: I would say at least three of the last 10 years we did. but it was being masked. I mean, if you look at the data, it kind of shows that we were experiencing some parts of deflation and things were, I mean, if you look at, I mean, even now look at commodity prices. Like if we were in a sustained bull market, commodity prices should be going through the roof and they're not. I mean, some of them are at really, I don't want to say historical low points, but, you know, definitely 10, 20 year lows. So, you know, there's certain indicators we look at that just show we used to do this thing called the inflation monitor and we stopped doing it because it was just getting tiresome but as we were running the data like we were just seeing all these indicators and they were all showing deflation and we almost changed the name to the deflation monitor because it was just like every quarter we'd see the same numbers and it was just deflationary but it's also a concept that's malleable inflation is x i mean you can look at the definition and say yes it is or it isn't but In reality, it's a lot more nuanced and it'll say whatever you want it to say. But we try to look at it unbiased to see if how it's going to affect us in ways that people aren't noticing.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting because I know when you look at student loan debt, the cost of education, particularly post-secondary education and
0: healthcare, those have been off the charts in terms of inflation. That's a great point. And actually, when you look at them, those are the only things that are showing high inflation. If you look at cost of colleges, cost of medical, I think there's one more. What was the other one you said? Post-secondary education and healthcare. Yeah. I mean, there's like, I think four four categories that are showing really high inflation. Everything else is flat and it's been flat for 20 years. So it's really a handful of things that are pushing the needle and the rest of them are flat. I mean, think about the cost of... Well, an iPhone's a bad example, but think of cost of your computer. When's the last time that went up? I mean, it's been the same for the last 20 years. And that's one example. But, you know, when you're calculating inflation, the Federal Reserve, and I say manipulates the numbers, but, you know, they play with the numbers a little bit and say, well, you know, it's a better computer and all that. It doesn't matter. The price hasn't gone up. I mean, I don't care what the quality is, you know, the price hasn't changed. And the cost of eggs, the cost of milk, has that really changed in 20 years? So you look at what you're paying on a day-to-day basis, some things have gone up, like cost of electricity and stuff like that's gone up. But generally speaking, a lot of stuff hasn't. So you can't just look at it in a test tube. You have to look at everything together, and that's really hard. Because how do you judge which is more important? Because if you're living day-to-day, paycheck-to-paycheck, then the cost of food, the cost of rent, and the cost of utilities is very important. But if you're worth $10 million those things are negligible and you're more concerned about the cost of assets. So it's totally based on the context that you're putting it in, but we tried to have a holistic view of it. And what we found is mostly deflationary and that has started to change. So just to reinforce that point is I'm not saying we're out of it, but the Fed has done a good job of using that reflexivity to its benefit and causing more of an inflationary trend. Perfect segue back to number four of these uh, powerful tools
1: to create legacy wealth. So the fourth one I have on my list here is debt reduction via inflation. So this will probably be easier to understand now that we've talked about inflation for a bit (laughs) as the benefit of debt reduction. So I love this one, by the way. So why don't you
0: uh, explain how that works? So this is one of the magics of of real estate. So most of us, if you own real estate, you probably have a mortgage on the property, right? Right. And if you look at the cost of mortgage, any sort of debt, it's fixed, right? You take out a $100,000 mortgage on a property and that $100,000 over the next 30 years will disappear as you pay it down. But that $100,000 amount doesn't change. It's fixed, right? So your inflation is going to reduce the value of that. So if you look at just say like, I don't know, let's say the rule of 72, Let's say you have an inflation of 7% a year. In 10 years, that $100,000 mortgage in real dollars will be in inflation adjusted will be worth 50000 because the prices have gone up, have doubled in that time. So that the mortgage actually has not gone up. It stayed the same. So in effect, it's been cut in half in terms of what it's worth. So you're paying interest on the mortgage and that's really the accounting for the difference of inflation and any sort of profits that they make. But if you get a mortgage, over time it's paid down and over time inflation deteriorates the value of that. So 30 years, that $100,000 mortgage might be worth 20,000 in future dollars, right? So it's a great way to reduce your debt. You're not gonna necessarily see this on a day-to-day basis, but long-term, it's a really powerful tool to take advantage of inflation. It is. It's incredible. And I think an
1: important thing to understand about that is your monthly mortgage payment, as you said, is fixed. It doesn't change. That $500 mortgage payment this month will be five hundred five years from now and 510 years from now. But over time, your rents will increase because of supply demand and because of inflation. And so that's a great segue to the fifth point, and that's limited supply and constant demand of real estate. So explain that.
0: So yeah, I mean, I think we all know real estate is about location, location, location. And you know, it was Mark Twain who said, buy land, they're not making any more of it. If you think about real estate, right? Let's say you buy beachfront property. Well, they're not making any more beachfront property. I mean, you could argue global warming and deterioration of oceanfront or whatever. Let's leave that aside. Like I said, I can't predict the future. But I know that there's a certain amount of oceanfront property right now in the US, and it's not going to You know, unless some earthquake happens, we're not going to get any more of it. So, you know, we have a static amount of real estate in the United States. And if you think about it, our population is growing. It's not shrinking, it's growing, which means more people are going to be buying it, which puts pressure on the price of real estate, which means it's pushing prices up over time. So, you know, buying land, it's, you know, unless something bad happens, it's hard to imagine that's going to go down in value. So that's really where that comes from. It's just looking at supply and demand curve. There's more demand and static supply, which means the price goes up. And that demand is increasing year over year. We're not producing enough housing, new housing units to keep up with the growing population. That's a problem in Boston right now, actually, is that they don't have room to build more houses. It's interesting because I wonder, I think to myself, like, what's going to cause this housing bubble to burst because Boston's really expensive and they're not making more housing, like there's no room. So, and there's more people. So how do you, you know, it's a tough, tough mental, mental gymnastics. I have to play with it, but I know a lot of places have similar problems. Yeah. Well, San Francisco is just as bad, if not worse, because they've got
1: incredibly expensive real estate. The demand is still there because there are a lot of jobs there, but they just don't have land to build. I mean, they've got, they're landlocked. They've got water on one side and they're completely developed on the other side. So you you can only go up, but You know, that is a big problem is lack of supply and strong demand. So that's why you don't see prices coming down or crashing is because there's still enough demand to keep those prices afloat. You have a comment about that or I'm going to go on to number six here?
0: Well, actually, it segues nicely into the next one, which is basically inflation is pegged to real estate. So, you know, if you look at that same concept, like where the population's increasing Salaries actually, wages are not increasing, but generally over time they do because inflation affects everything over time. So, if you have a let's say a 3% inflation rate, everything in your life financially should go up 3%. Real estate prices, wages, the cost of goods and services you know, that's what inflation does, it causes prices to match the price of inflation. Now there are things like education or healthcare that will exceed that inflation. There are things like computers, which will be less than inflation, but on average over time, things should mimic that. And if you look at real estate, it's scary how close real estate does to mimic the rate of inflation. And this gets back to the first point of capital appreciation is over time, over a hundred years of data, you can look at real estate as closely mimicking the inflation rate. So if inflation's 5%, real estate on average will go up 5%. And except for the basically 2000 to 2010, right? Which is when things were really out of control. If you kind of ignore that part of it, it's really, really scary as to how close inflation is to it. So effectively inflation is going to cause Whatever the inflation rate is, is going to cause your rents, your asset prices, the amount that people have to pay the rent, all of it should match that inflation rate. So if you know what the inflation rate is, then you can probably closely approximate what your capital appreciation is as well.
1: Yeah. And I think that's true in general terms. I think there are local factors, local drivers in every market that will affect prices whether it's going up or down like for example population growth or migration trends that are positive or negative those those will obviously affect the price of real estate but all else being equal the effects of inflation should be pretty much uniform across the board so you got to keep that in mind i think in terms of picking markets cuz you know we're really sensitive in terms of where to invest you know what markets what neighborhoods not just the real estate it's about more of a contextual thing, you know, where do I invest? And so those supply and demand dynamics certainly play into that decision-making.
0: Yeah, it does. And that's a great point is, you know, where you're investing is important. I mean, you know a lot more of this than than I do, Marco, because you're living this day-to-day. But what we've noticed from some of our real estate clients is, you know, a few years ago, they stopped investing in the primary markets and started focusing on the secondary and even tertiary markets. And they did it because they had to, like they weren't willing to accept 3% cash flows. They wanted seven or eight or 10 or whatever they wanted. So they stretched beyond what was acceptable into other markets. And Californians were buying places in, you know, Portland, Maine. And one of my clients uh, works up there in commercial real estate. And he's like, I, I can't tell you how many Californians are seeing here because our rates are better than theirs. And that's great. But historically their market is way overvalued. And, you know, he's telling me a story and how some of the old timers who sure there's some old timers listen to the show, you know, but the people eat, sleep, you know, breathe real estate and every nickel they ever earned goes back into real estate. You know, these people never sell, they just buy and they 1031 or whatever. And this prices were so high. These people are actually selling real estate and paying the taxes. Like that's how high the prices were. They're willing to pay taxes on these properties because it would still be better than owning overpriced property. So Scary thought to think about, but that's some of the craziness. And I mean, I've seen people rushing out to Montana to buy property and, you know, I have some clients out there and I just shake my head and say, I'm like, why are you going to Montana? Yeah. Yeah. Or <laughs> you know, Idaho for that matter. Desperate. Yeah. Well, yeah. They're desperate. They're just want cash flow, and they're not getting it anywhere else.
1: Sure. Well, you mentioned taxes. Perfect segue to number seven, the last item on this list. And that's the tax benefits of real estate.
0: Yeah. I mean, real estate, it's great. You know, you you look at a lot of investments and you don't get the same tax benefits. You know, if you're buying a stock, let's say you you can hold it for 12 months and get long-term capital gains, but that's pretty much it. You know, you don't get much tax benefits. I mean, there's some MLPs that you can sometimes get some tax benefits from, but generally speaking, you're not getting many tax benefits. With real estate, you get a bunch of tax benefits, you know. So kind of piling on to some of the other topics we already talked about. But in addition to that, you've got the fact that you're, let's say, amortization or depreciation would be the better term to use depreciation of the property over time. You've got expenses, right? You know, you're operating a property, it's you're, you're earning 20 grand a year in uh, rent and you're paying out 10 grand in expenses, right? Well, some of that expenses are, you know, hiring people to fix the roof. Some of it is you driving around to your properties. You know, there's all sorts of, of expenses that people can kind of tie in there. But it's like owning a business. You get the benefits of those expenses. But if you look at some of the wealthiest people in this country, a lot of them are real estate owners. I don't want to raise any political ire on, the, on your audience. But I mean, you look at a guy like Donald Trump, who's been a real estate owner for many years, and he's gotten wealthy off of it, and he's even taken it to another level, which is not even owning real estate, but just you know leasing his name to it, which gives him even less exposure. But from the tax benefits, it's like, Hey, we just, I mean, how many times has he filed for bankruptcy or reorganization? And it's not just him. Like a lot of people do that. You get burned and you just say, all right, well, great. Well, let's uh, reorganize this and we'll do it again. Right. There's tons of benefits for owning real estate. I mean, taxes is, is certainly one of them. Yeah. I think it's, uh, for the person who's really, who's got a good account, it's a great thing to do. So I was talking to Tom Wheelwright a
1: couple of weeks ago, who's Robert Kiyosaki's CPA and tax advisor, and he was telling me that as of right now, real estate is the best tax-favored vehicle of any kind of investment or investment class in the U.S. And I believe it was oil and gas prior to that, but now real estate, because of, I guess, the new tax bill or something that just happened recently, real estate has become the number one best investment to be in from a tax perspective.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, the new tax bill. There's there's so many nuances in that tax bill. I mean, most of the people I talk to don't even know them all because they're just it's so deep. But I would agree. I mean, real estate. Kind of, there was a time where oil and gas had some really favorable tax treatment. They still do, but there are these things called master limited partnerships in Canada. They were called Canadian royalty trusts it had some phenomenal tax benefits to them. But I think overall, you're right. Real estate is by far and away the best that I'm aware of. Yeah. Interesting.
1: So let's wrap this up. Let's just take a step back and wrap up with this one thing. So what would you say is a good long-term strategy when it comes to building legacy wealth from real estate? You know, When you combine everything you know and all the things you're involved in, and I know you're involved with self-directed retirement accounts and all kinds of stuff. If you were just to step back from all this and look at real estate as the powerful investment vehicle that it is, and this really could be an episode in, in and of itself, but what would you just say to someone to look at or consider as a long-term strategy when it comes to building legacy wealth from real estate?
0: Well, I think you're right. It It is an episode in itself, but I'll try to make it brief. So I have this philosophy in that people should invest with their investor psychology, So what I mean by that is if you look at a guy like Warren Buffett, everybody knows Warren Buffett and they know that he's a historical buy and hold guy and blue chip companies and all that. And everybody thinks they know Warren Buffett. But if you were to try to invest like Warren Buffett, you may not be the best person to do that. And you may, but you may not, right? Or Carl Icahn. You think of all these people who've been really successful investors. Their form of investing is different from everyone else's. So Ray Daly is probably a bad example. You look at a guy like Carl Icahn, he probably wouldn't be as successful trying to invest like Warren Buffett because he has a different style. And every one of these guys has their own style and they found what works for them. So what I find is my style is different from Warren Buffett's and different from all these other guys, but I've figured out what works best for me based on how my mind works. So I look at my weaknesses, and my strengths So I know my weaknesses with investing and I've found ways to protect against that, you know, by using other strategies. And I think each one of us as investors need to do that. So there's no single best strategy for real estate in that way. What I will say is there are some strategies that I really like, but some of these are also based on what's going on and trends too. So some strategies I like, I'll vary them because I think it'll appeal to a few different investors. But I think buy and hold investing for most people in real estate is great. Assuming that you want to be a landlord, of course, because that has its own challenges. But assuming that that's your strategy, I think it's great for most people. If you do your research, you find the right tenants, you're okay being a landlord or you know, you have enough cash flow to pay for someone else to do it. That's a really great strategy. I keep coming back to the landlord thing because that brings its own challenges. But that's a good strategy. Some people don't want to take the buy and hold risk. They need what I would call action. They need to be doing something. They can't sit in a room quietly by themselves. They're always moving. People like that might want to flip properties or they might want to flip contracts or something like that. That might be more attuned to their investor psychology. Personally, I like private mortgages. We do a lot with private mortgages. I don't get all the benefits of real estate, but I do get a lot of the, it does uh, mitigate a lot of the risks that concern me. And for me, that's lower risk. You get some of the cash flow of real estate, but you don't get the risks of having to deal with tenants and destroying the place and all that. It's just much simpler. So for me, that's a strategy that works. Some people like to invest in tax liens or fishing rights or airspace rights or there's so many strategies out there. It's hard to say just one, but I think that if people understand what they should do is they should understand themselves. They should understand what they're good at and what they're bad at. And they have to really be honest with themselves. Like, you know, just saying, Oh, I'm going to make, I'm going to be a billionaire in real estate. Well, if you don't have a background in it, it's probably less likely. But if you can be honest with yourself and say, here, here's what I can do. Here are my strengths. Then I think they'll be much more likely to be successful. And I think that's really the goal. I mean, a lot of people buy real estate because they want that passive cash flow. They want to be independently wealthy. Like there's some really attractive things about real estate that people want. And there's plenty of ways to do that as long as they understand themselves and what works best for them. Yeah, that was a good way to describe it. I like to kind of summarize it by
1: saying this there are truly no bad investments, there's just bad investors. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I would agree with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it just comes down to a person's financial education and what they understand and their risk tolerance. Because a bad deal for me might be a great deal for you and vice versa.
0: Well, I would actually nuance that and say there's no bad investments. There's only bad prices. So any investment is a good investment at the right price. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Good point.
0: Good stuff, Kirk.
1: Well, listen, we've gone long here. So tell our listeners how they can find you or get more information about what you do and yourself.
0: Sure. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to learn more about us and me and what we do for our clients, you can go to innovativewealth.com. There's plenty of articles there that I've written about real estate and self-directed IRAs and other topics. You can certainly find me on social media. I'm, I'm out there in all the usual places. And I also have a put together a free report for for your listeners here on the rent versus buy calculator, which I I think, you know, people will appreciate it if they're considering whether to buy or or rent property. It's uh, makes it easy just by having a calculator. You can put numbers in so you can go to innovative com backslash Marco. Awesome. Sounds good, Kirk. I really appreciate you coming on. Lots of great
1: information. We went a little long, but I think this has been very valuable for everybody listening. So with that, to our audience, help us spread the word. Visit us on iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on our next episode.